0: Uh, scripture reading this morning reading from the English Standard Version uh, it will be Romans 13, 1 through 10. Some of you might be familiar with this, it was in the news this week, so. Um, Let every person be subject to the government, governing authorities, for there is no authority excuse me, sorry, I don't need reading glasses yet, I don't think, <laughs> For there is no authority except for God and those that exist who have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And for those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to the good conduct, but to bad. Would you have have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good but if you do wrong you will be afraid be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain he is a servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer therefore you must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience for because for because of this you will pay taxes For the authorities are the ministers of God attending to this very thing and to pay all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are owed revenue to whom revenue is owed respect to whom respect is owed honour to whom honour is owed Owe no one anything except for to love each other and for the one who loves one another is fulfilling the law For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and all the other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law.
1: So we're doing this series called Junk Drawer, and we're looking, uh, opening, opening a drawer and saying, uh, is this a hidden treasure, or can we get rid of this? Uh, the metaphor in thinking scripturally kind of extends to culture, to say there are many parts of scripture that people find difficult to deal with, and may say, um, maybe we can get rid of this. Uh, To be sure, there is much in Scripture that needs to be interpreted culturally, like in light of the culture of the day, there are some things that would not apply to us in the same ways that they did uh, when they were written. This is particularly uh, true when you're dealing with Old Testament passages and texts. But in terms of some New Testament passages and texts, this particular passage is one that people have said, well, given what we know of history, this seems to be pretty dangerous speech, And do we really believe this, or maybe should we just get rid of it? Probably worth noting that uh, this passage for this particular sermon was chosen uh, a month ago or so, thereabouts. And so uh, some of you, if you follow the news, particularly the American political news, you will know that this was quoted this week. um, And uh, well, I'll be frank, and I was sickened by how it was quoted, but we'll get there. Uh, the good thing is that when it was quoted, uh, very many Christian groups across the political spectrum came out and condemned uh, how this passage was used, uh, including the political persuasions of the people of the of the person who said it, who quoted this. So, when we look at authority and government, we consider the order of things. It's not surprising to you for me to say religion uh, often protects the status quo. Uh, if you were, like, you're living in North Vancouver, you think of churches. You could do this with churches, mosques, synagogues, other places of worship. And often those religious institutions protect some kind of status quo and are often saying um, we need to get back to, to some, something the way that it used to be. So there is an order of things, and often the religious institutions are seen to be preserving that order. This, as you know also, is not always the way in history. Uh, There are many historical events and occasions where it is religious impulse, impetus, kind of um, people being inspired from their faith that has actually undone the order of things, and many times we would say in very positive ways. We are on the 500th anniversary this year of one of the most significant changes in that in in that regard. It's a religious change and there was a status quo in religion and uh 500 years ago Martin Luther this uh, monk this catholic monk well it was all catholic back then for the most part um he nailed those 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg and said I think that things should change. And if you don't know who Martin Luther is, uh, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting without him. There wouldn't be this church, there wouldn't be... all that. That's, and, and the change came rapidly, and it was change that was difficult for many people and had excesses and all other kinds of things. But the picture I have on the screen is someone who, uh, as the story is told, was a bit of a catalyst for Martin Luther finally having enough. So Martin Luther was this monk, but he was thinking the church seems to be focusing on, he was troubled by many of the practices of the church. This man is a man named John Tetzel. And John Tetzel was uh, worked for the church, and he was assigned to collect indulgences. So for those who don't know what indulgences are, uh, at the time he would walk around with a container that you put money in. And he had a little ditty, a little song as well that he would sing. A number of these collectors would do this. I don't, it's not in English, so, but basically it said, if you can hear the box jingling, then you'll, you get, souls are released from purgatory. I always think of It's a Wonderful Life. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets, it's that kind of thing. Uh, if you put money into this, if you, give, if you give the church money, then you can buy forgiveness of sin. The idea was that they they held the goodness of the saints who had already died. And those saints had excess goodness. And so the church owned that goodness. And for a certain amount of money, you could buy some of that goodness because you need it because you're, you know, well, you're no saint, right? get it. There was also the belief in purgatory, which was a real threat to people. And so the declaration was, if you give us money, your previous sins can be forgiven. They extended that to say, and this is just fantastic, not only will your previous sins be forgiven, but if you give us quite a substantial amount of money, your future sins will be forgiven. Martin Luther saw John Tetzel walking around in Germany and said, I've had enough. One nobleman of the day, I think he must have been a young nobleman, one of those troublemakers, he, as the story goes, he went up to John Tetzel and said, So I can buy forgiveness of sins. Yes, you can. If you just give us some money, you can buy this indulgence. I can buy the forgiveness of future sins. Yes, you can. And so the young nobleman put money into the box, and then he and his friends went off and hid in the bushes some way up ahead. And when John Tetzel made his way up further, they jumped out of the bushes and beat him up and stole the money. Their sins having been forgiven. This passage talks about the order of things, Romans 13. Can we get rid of this, or what's this for? I've got a picture of Martin Luther there. That's not him saying that, that's Paul writing in Romans 13. How this passage sounds and how it has been used, one of the commentaries that I read this week on this passage was written uh, during the early days of the rise of National Socialism in Germany, the rise of the Nazi Party. And what do you think they would say? This was written by a dissenter, by the way, who would eventually become the main dissenter. And, uh, and he's writing on this passage. There are no chapter divisions in the Bible. We add the verse divisions and the uh, chapter divisions. And so you don't have Romans 13 as an actual, like God gave you Romans 13. It's this letter And so it helps at times when you're reading Scripture scripture to look at what comes before. And what comes before this, this passage that has been read for us are simply these words, overcome evil with good. Now, does that change how you hear the rest of the passage? It should. There are some things worth overcoming and resisting. And so if you have been taught this passage in a way that says, don't resist authority, that's not a correct interpretation there's something else going on. There are times to resist authority. If you set up a theocracy, and I know and love all of you here, but in my years as minister, I've picked up that some people in any church would like a theocracy. Do you know what a theocracy means? It means that the religious people are in charge, and they would say, since we're in charge, God is in charge. This is a a tendency that has happened through history time and time again. And there is not one case of a good theocracy, even when well-meaning people try to set it up. So in other words, and this is the words of the commentary I was reading, you have this picture of the thing that you think will be supreme good. If only we were in charge, and that means we're going to try to follow God. So if we were in charge, things would be okay. This commentary was pointing out, if you try to set up a perfect society and supreme good, it will become, quote, the supreme wrongdoing every single time. So there is a division when you get to this text between the authority of God and the authority of humanity, and the division is noted. No human order or government is that of God. Can you hear that? No human order or government is that of God. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. There never has been and there never will be. And any nation that declares itself to be Christian, especially loudly, will become the supreme wrongdoing. Now, this passage says that Order is ordained by God, and there is authority sustained by God. Consider again how this passage, though, has been used in history. This passage has been used to oppress women and tell them, even as they're being abused, that they ought not to resist or stand up. This passage has been used in defense of slavery, lining up with other passages in Scripture that say things like, Slaves obey your masters. This passage was written at a time when the people to whom it was written lived in a world that was dominated by Rome, and Rome was no friend of the Christian church at this point. And so words are being written that say, to people, that say, you are to obey the government. You are to be a good citizen. But to use this passage in the ways that I just mentioned is to abuse the scripture full stop. If I were to say to you, just name this, Jesus and the kingdoms of the world. How does Jesus relate to the kingdoms of the world? You'll start to move towards this distinction between divine and human authority. When we say, if only we were in charge, you could consider your political persuasion. Try not to snicker or sneer when I say these things. It would be the order. I could change the order to, do you like John Horgan? Or would you rather Christy Clark still be premier? Do you like Justin Trudeau or Doug Ford, the new premier of Ontario or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? If your person was in charge, would things be so much better, right? It's true that there might be a difference. I am not saying that all political leaders are the same. I'll have, I have an, a word for that. That's ignorant. Political decisions matter. Politicians send people off to war. Politicians make decisions that affect the poor, the needy, the wealthy. But if your person was in charge, is that really, does that really make things better in terms of, well, now we know God's ruling. This passage gets its energy from the concept of the sovereignty of God. What does it mean that God is over all humanity? But you have to read the whole thing, including some verses from the previous chapter. As I mentioned, there are, these divisions are put there by us. Listen from Romans 12. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Already, already Romans 13 is changing, isn't it? Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we move to 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Now, if, as I'm reading this, if you picture yourself hearing this from the voice of somebody who is oppressing the poor or the needy or abusing people... It changes, but when you heard what came before in chapter twelve, it doesn't sound like that, and it shouldn't. When you continue, so it continues in verse seven pay to all what's owed to them. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. I always think if that's an interesting thing. Very rarely have I heard Christian people, particularly conservative Christian people, kind of like saying, Well, you know, we've just it's it's just I'm not going to complain about too high taxes. Pay your taxes. Jesus, the way Jesus put it was, Render unto Caesar." Yes, yeah, Caesar really likes coins and money. Give that to him. I'm about something else. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. respect to whom respect is owed, Honor to whom honor is owed. And then verse eight, O oh, no one, anything except love. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 9, toward the end of verse 9, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, this is the fulfilling of the law. For those who know the political context of this week's, uh, where this came out this week, listen again. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, 1800s in the United States, this passage was used in pro-slavery circles. In particular, this passage directly was used against fugitive slaves. So slaves who had run away found their freedom or been helped, right, underground railroad and the rest. This passage was used even in legal conversation to say those slaves belonged to their owners and must be given back. This passage was used to defend apartheid in South Africa. You could see why. And as we mentioned, Nazi rule in Europe. I've stood in the gas chambers of Auschwitz. A couple of things were on, well, a number of things were on my mind there. The darkness was palpable. First, I've told you before that it changed the way that I say things like, God is on the throne. I do believe God is on the throne. But it's troubling that he was on the throne then too. And secondly, was that of God what happened? Of course, the only answer is no. At that time, many many Christians in Germany supported the government. They had a name. They were called German Christians. It's an actual group of Christians who supported the Nazi government. And there were dissenters. Key figures among those dissenters were Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer famously even supporting an attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So this passage. I complete the sermon on Thursday this week and a couple hours later I'm at home and I turn the news on. And I see this. Oops. Oh, can we, can we pause it just for a sec? I should give the context for people who don't know. I assume everybody knows It's
2: about something. separate.
1: I assume everybody knows the news, but this is the Attorney General of the United States defending a policy of taking children and babies away from their parents when they come to the border. He is giving you misinformation in this quote because he is saying that this has always been treated as a crime, which is not. It's been treated as a civil matter, and never before have children been ripped away from their parents like this. Um, So he is going to defend... And by the way... This individual who is speaking, Jeff Sessions, is the one who championed and sought to institute this policy. Uh, Of course, the policy for those who are quite anti-immigration, or they would say anti-illegal immigration, uh, they would say, well, it's a deterrent, because if people think that kids are going to be taken away from them, they won't try to cross the border. First of all, it's hard for them to know that necessarily. And secondly, if you use the deterrent argument, why don't we just tell them we'll kill them if they cross the border? deterrent is not an argument for this. Here's Jeff Sessions.
2: I thought I'd take a little bit of digression here to uh, discuss some concerns raised by our church friends about separation of families. Many of the criticisms raised in recent days are not fair, not logical, and some are contrary to plain law. First, Illegal entry into the United States is a crime. It should be. It must be. If you're going to have a legal system and have any limits whatsoever,
1: it's misinformation. persons
2: who violate the law of our nation are subject to prosecution. If you violate the law, you subject yourself to prosecution. And I would cite you to the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans uh, 13 to obey the laws of the government. Because God has ordained the government for his purposes. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves. Consistent, fair application of law is in itself a good and moral thing. And that protects the weak. It protects the lawful.
1: I don't like to make too many political statements, but I'm willing now. I'm sickened. I've never lived in a time when policies like this were being instituted in countries like mine, not Canada, but the United States, similar culture. And I have certainly never lived in a time when the Bible has been used to defend them, and it's wrong. It's wrong. (laughs) I almost want to apologize to my friends who share a different political persuasion than me because you want to talk to me and say, but you didn't know this, you didn't know this, you didn't know this. But I'm willing to upset you. I went to hear Noam Chomsky a number of years ago. I went with my friend Rick. Jack Layton, who was the leader of the NDP at the time, was introducing him. And Sven Robinson, another NDP member, MLA in BC, was doing the close. Jack Layton was really intelligent and articulate. Good introduction. Noam Chomsky came to speak, and he spoke. Many of you would know sociologist Noam Chomsky uh, started in linguistics uh, and speaks about government and such. His talk was on how power is the thing that we ought to be afraid of in human concepts of power and over and over again he warned us about you know the problem is power and thinking that if only you had power things would be okay but even you in power is bad in in the political ways that power is often thought of a little side note that I remember Noam Chomsky had that dry sense of humor and so not everybody got the jokes And there's some people in the room, we're witnessing it now, who get the jokes really well. Rick and I were sitting toward the front, and one of the lines that Noam Chomsky said, we heard, (laughs) Lawrence was there that day too, weren't you Lawrence? We said, Lawrence is in the room. At the end of the speech of warning about power, Sven Robinson came up with some uh, First Nations artifact to give, and it was something to put around the neck of Noam Chomsky as well that basically you know, was like, a you're a leader now in our community. And Sven Robinson spoke about how, you know, thank you so much, we need to hear things like this, but the words that Robinson used basically said, if only you were in charge, everything would be great. And I looked at Noam Chomsky's face and I thought it, would be, it was all he could do to just go like this as they put this mantle of authority over him. He didn't get what I was saying. I'm not making a political argument in terms of political parties here. I'm not saying that the party uh, that is different than that of Jeff Sessions, if only they were in charge, everything would be great. I'm saying that on a human level, What I'm saying is that the real revolution comes from God. The real revolution comes from God. One day, the way of Jesus Christ will be known. Should we obey government or should we obey Jesus? Of course, the answer is you should obey government unless that government gets you to deny Jesus and to disobey Jesus. Did God choose Donald Trump? Did God choose Abraham Lincoln? Did God choose these people? If you ever answer simply yes or simply no, that's not really a well-thought-out answer. This text will show you that. His ways are higher than our ways. What this text declares is that in the way of God, sovereignty over all, all true power comes from God. In other words, even people who are making terrible decisions, even people who are making hurtful decisions, they wouldn't know what it means to be alive or to be in power without God being sovereign. Does that mean God blesses all of those decisions? Of course it does not. It's the same thing even when we get to the level of parenting, anywhere where we have authority or power. You know, what it, you know when a parent just says, Obey oh, me! And then uses the Bible, maybe, to back that up. But they're being tyrannical. Sometimes, most times, they're not. His ways are higher than our ways. This has this is true whether we're seeking to protect the status quo or to tear it down. The moment we rise up in protest is when protest must be directed against us. So those of you who think, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a different political order? You know already, don't you? It's helpful to know that if you're in charge, we need protesters against you. We really do. 1968 was an amazing year. It was the year uh, I was born in 1969 in January. But in in 1968, I just watched a four-part documentary on CNN as well. Um, You think that things are kind of crazy now. If you lived in the United States in 1968, you must have thought the world was coming apart. Protests against the war in Vietnam. Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Just months later, Robert Kennedy was killed, running for Democratic nomination for president killed the night of winning the, the primary in California. Uh, they rushed him away from a crowd because they thought that, you there know, wouldn't be enough security with the crowd of people, through the kitchen at the place where he was celebrating winning the nomination just after he'd given his speech, and he was shot and killed, Robert Kennedy was. Months later, at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, there were these protests, but the proper term for it is police riot because the police just started beating up the protesters. In the arguments at the convention, this is the democratic convention, there were people supporting the protest- protesters, but there were also people saying protesters are terrible and dangerous, they should get a job, they're good for nothing. In the end, it's not a government or a political party or a philosophy. The commentary, uh, commentary I was reading put it this way, the good man, it's written a number of years ago, good man or woman, the good man beholds the end. In other words, you are to be a good citizen, but your trust in authority is trust in God, not trust in human authority. Stop getting in political fights with people about these things. Be a Christian whose trust is in God, knowing that whether it's Donald Trump or Barack Obama or Justin Trudeau or Andrew Scheer, these are human, this is human authority. We as Christians are to know the end. And by the way, could you do this for me, please? Oh, Lord, could you do this for me, please? Could you learn to criticize your own side and not the other? We don't need people who can tell us what's wrong with the other side. We need you to be able to say, yeah, I know I support this government, but it's true. They've really messed this up. We ought to be good citizens. We ought to pay our taxes. This is written also as, remember, everything is about Christian witness. You are to witness in this world, and if you are to resist all the time, you know, fight about all these things, you're not witnessing. Plus, you can, even, you can even obey, at times, governments that are clearly not doing things that are of God. It doesn't mean you support oppressive things. But you can even, in a sense, you know, trust, accept that authority because ultimately your trust is in the authority of God. That's what this text is teaching. No authority comes except from God. So, Martin Luther King, Jr., Take a few more minutes here. We'll share communion at the end, but this is worth it for me, and so I'm hoping it's worth it for you. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist pastor and then became a, and then some people would say the civil rights leader in the 1960s. In April of 1968, so end of March and into April, Martin Luther King Jr. and the various organizations with which he worked uh, got connected to a problem in Memphis. In Memphis, Tennessee, there was a sanitation workers strike. Garbage truck drivers and workers. These sanitation workers were almost exclusively African American. And they were not paid well. They were not treated well. And so this was a civil rights movement. And The sanitation workers asked Martin Luther King Jr. and others, would you come and support us? And so they did. The workers went on strike. I believe they were told this was an unlawful strike, all the rest. Uh, And Martin Luther King Jr. went down with other leaders and they had a march. Now, the occasion of the march came particularly because one one of the rules for these workers, one of the restrictions on their job... Was that, in the South, in the United States, you've been down there. You get these huge thunderstorms, thunder and lightning, just torrential rain for a bit, and then it clears up. And some of us have been to New Orleans and seen that. Corinne knows very well of those. And these sanitation workers would be working, and when those kinds of storms came, they would often seek refuge in a little covered area in the neighborhood, in the house—not in, but near the house or whatever, where they were working, until the rain stopped. Which was usually, as we say, quite brief of a time. Uh, it was written into their, into law that they weren't allowed to do this because those were white people's houses. And so they weren't allowed to seek coverage from the rain. So where do you think they would do it? They would sit in the back of the garbage truck. And on one occasion, two African-American men were sitting in the back of their garbage truck and a broom handle that was on the truck fell, and it activated the compactor. And these two men were crushed to death. And so, many people had had enough. And they said to Martin Luther King Jr., can you come down and march with us? And so he did. The march turned violent. And, you know, it's always like, whose fault was it? There were store windows smashed, there was police violence, there was some of you know the, these times and places like the, in Selma and other things, and there's always enough blame to go around. But Martin Luther King, as you know, had about him civil disobedience. In other words, we're not going to be violent. Our protests will be peaceful. And so he was quite upset that this, protest, this march had turned violent, and so he said, we're going to go back and do it again. And so the plan was to do this march again. And so he went back to Memphis. And on April 3rd, he gave a speech uh, in the context of these sanitation workers, but obviously he had bigger things on his mind. It seems clear to me that he was thinking potentially about death. This is the night before he was killed. And he gave a speech that, well, here it is. He was shot hours after this.
3: So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord.
1: When I see that, I think it's a travesty that what he did and what I do are both called preaching. And that was a proper way to use scripture. The real revolution comes from God. The person of God, the man and woman of God, knows the end. It is not Christian virtue to protect the social order of things. Yes, be a good citizen. But there is always that about our social order that needs to be torn down, including now. It is not Christian virtue to upend the social order of things. But you are to overcome evil with good. Our trust is in the Lord. And then, toward the end of this passage, what do you owe to society, to government, your taxes you owe to be a good citizen? But you could pay all your taxes perfectly, you could pay all these debts, and you will have one debt that will always be outstanding, and that is the debt of love, says this text. Love your neighbor. Love does no harm. To neighbor there has never been and there will never be anything we turn to the table now and as you take this bread and this cup realize there is an aspect of receiving the bread and the cup that is political in this world there is there has there is there is not there has never been and there never will be anything as revolutionary as the love of God in Jesus Christ Let me pray for the communion. And we say you are welcome to receive communion if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. Jesus Christ showed us God's view of power in giving his life. Every person in authority, every authority, every time you hear authority spoken about in scripture, please ask yourself this question. Is this the world's view of power or is this God's view of power? Jesus Christ gave his life Denied himself, he is the one we follow. Let us pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Protect us, heavenly Father, from our divisions, particularly to those of us who claim Lord Jesus Christ your name. Even our differences politically, they should pale compared to our trust in you. And so we are glad to share this communion together. And we say in receiving that we trust, Lord Jesus Christ, that you are before all things and in you all things hold together and you reconcile all things. We declare that our trust more than any earthly authority is in you. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We receive in Jesus' name. Amen.